This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Here's a question for you, Dave. Why are people so unkind? Have, have we ever figured out the answer to that question <laughs> that Kamal asked us all those years ago? Why are people so unkind? No, and it was a really deep question back in the 70s and it still resonates today. I mean, if we could answer that question, we could solve a lot of other problems, right, Tom? <laughs> we sure could, Dave. <laughs> we sure could. <laughs> Did you get caught up in Kamal momentum that dominated the news? Oh, I mean, there are those, there's other news stories that happened this week that we'll get to in a second. But the main story I think everyone was Kamal's incredible backflipping. Maybe he is like the apex swing voter, like the king <laughs> of the swing voters. Maybe he is like bang right in the middle of whatever Venn diagram makes up a swing voter. It's fascinating, isn't it? I didn't check this morning. I don't know which way he's voting today. What he's up to. Once again, validating my opinion that I try not to express publicly that swing voters are fucking idiots, okay? I'm sorry, I can't respect you. How can you be on the fence on some very basic big questions? How do you honestly say, oh, sometimes I like the forces of capital, but then some other times I think I like the people who pretend to be for the working. Per- like, what, what's wrong with you? Why are you swinging a new turn and all over the shop? I guess it's just about how convenient holding a belief is at any given moment, right? I guess so. Well, it's also an indictment on the state of politics, I mean, which is, you know, not, not people's problems. Yeah. They don't see much of a difference. They don't think things can change much either way. So they will reduce it to basic vibes like could I have a beer in the pub with X or whatever, maybe. maybe why, why not make a stupid decision and go back and forth for petty reasons when you think the whole system sucks anyway? Yeah, I mean, there's that. There's also like being in this sort of climate apocalypse, end of the world vibe and being a bit like maybe this is good. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe this will work for me. Uh, here's the timeline <laughs> if people missed it. Okay, I, I've tracked it out. I've got a huge chalkboard with like red string following it about just to keep up to date with where Kamal is on the voice to parliament referendum question. On the 10th of September, the 88-year-old, I don't want to be ageist, but he is 88, let's keep that in mind at all times, declared his initial opposition to the proposed advisory body, suggesting it represented a form of apartheid. Oh, that, oh. Did you see this? Can I just interrupt the timeline? That particular argument has been driving me nuts. Every time I tweet about The Voice, 300 people with a bunch of numbers after their names tell me that it's about apartheid. And, God, it's just maddening. Anyway, continue, (laughs) Kamal. (laughs) (laughs) It's not. That's our response. That's our fact check on that claim. It's not apartheid. Next. Yeah, it's really not. What's The Voice? I just don't understand it. It's just noise and it's not clear. Vote no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not going to vote apartheid. We don't want white. We don't want one race privilege. Vote no. Jesus. Now he would later say in an interview that he came to that position because he saw John Farnham's face next to the word no, either on TV or on an ad online. I'm still not sure exactly which one. And based purely on that, wow, Kamal reached his decision. <laughs> that is a no. way to that is a way to decide something very important, isn't it? Just just a flash. No, it's not what would John Farnham do. It's what's that written next to a picture of John Farnham? <laughs> and that that's what? and that's how I'm going to form my opinion on this incredibly important thing. Kamal, continue. <laughs> what word is near the face of a person that I know? I'll go with that. Yeah, I'll, I'll make the decision based on that. So he sort of goes public on that. I think other people notice that his, his Twitter generally is pretty cooked. 
uh, Kamal, I think, has a lot of other opinions we might disagree with. Mm. Um, and we should also remember this is Kamal. Let's just keep that in context. Of, I think like, that's why, important. Why do we care about the opinion of Kamal? But, but anyway, it's important just to remember it's Kamal. Anyway, so lots of people are like, oh, no, Kamal's a no voter. Kamal is then approached by Dan Illich, who used to produce Tonightly, the show that I was on. We, we once got Kamal on to Tonightly to read the Gettysburg Address because we thought that would be really funny. He started doing it. The audience started <laughs> laughing and he got upset. And so we had to retake him doing the Gettysburg Address and take it absolutely seriously. Very bizarre <laughs> moment in my entertainment career. But there you go. <laughs> That's a fascinating story, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Was, the whole thing? A very, it was in the last two weeks. The whole thing. He loves the Gettysburg Address. We were doing, we, it, we'd already been cancelled. We had this two weeks on air where we were doing this segment, Why the Fuck Not, where we just did whatever the hell we wanted because we were cool. cancelled anyway. I love it. And we just thought the idea of Kamal doing the Gettysburg Address would be funny enough. Dan happened to know that that's something Kamal would like to do. <laughs> what was not communicated was the idea that we thought that was funny and Kamal thought it was really serious and a beautiful tribute to Abraham Lincoln. That is beautiful. <laughs> Can I just say, having not seen it, but I imagine Kamal would do a very good job of that. Oh, like he nailed David, it, right? it was a beautiful rendition. Yeah. Oh, my Lord, that beautiful voice, his passion, and, and, and you know, some sense of connection to – a history of the kind of racial justice that Abraham Lincoln was kind of fighting for. Yeah, all that lovely. But it was still funny. It was still <laughs> definitely funny. Far out. Anyway, we did it again. You can see it online if you like. Anyway, Dan Ellis approaches him. He sits down with Dane Simpson, wonderful comedian, and Eddie Sinnott, um, the um, uh, First Nations lawyer as well, who's a prominent uh, advocate for yes. They have a big old chat about what the voice is, the history of Australia, and by September the 22nd, we've got Kamal back on board. He's a yes voter, baby. I came here believing that the no was a strong possibility. They've convinced me otherwise, and I'm delighted that I'm, I have changed my no to yes. He said he was previously uninformed. He said a yes vote was by far the best thing for the country. He said the whole idea of voting no is abhorrent to me. We believe 90% of bullshit. Just learn the facts. We are indoctrinated with so much bullshit. He goes on the ABC. He gives this interview about how he was in a film in 1967 in which he played an Aboriginal person, which I knew nothing about, even though, what? of course, he's, he's um, a Malaysian born with Indian heritage. But he was cast as an Aboriginal character in this film. During the filming of that, he and an Aboriginal like, girl we- in the film. Th- this is 1967. The, okay. the same year as the referendum. <laughs> this is horrifying stuff to hear. This is, these are Australian standards horrifying for this sort stuff. of thing, right? Okay, It's classic Australia. And then during the filming of that, he and the Aboriginal girl who was in the film weren't allowed to sit with the rest of the cast and crew during catering. They were, they were put to one side and, and given some crappy sandwiches while everybody else had nice food. This is a story mm-hmm. that he tells on the ABC. So wow. this gives him some level of insight into racial discrimination in Australia. He comes out as a yes voter and, of course, Anthony Albanese gets very excited, okay? He, he said he grew up watching Kamal. He took heart from his yes stance. Something I get great heart from is the decision of Kamal, a very courageous decision. He's someone who came out and said no and went away, spoke to people, read what it was about, read the question and decided that he would come out and declare his support for yes and to say, why would anyone oppose this. So we have now a, a new term that we've coined today, Kamal Mentum, in the last couple of weeks. Kamal Mentum. 
Oh, no, they didn't. So, they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Given Kamal's history as the apex swing voter, they shouldn't have gone in so hard on this because I reckon there's a twist coming up, right, Tom? Well, that was on the Saturday. The very next day, <laughs> literally the next day on Sunday, Kamal goes on the project and says, nah, guys, I've thought about it even more. I've learnt more of the facts. And I now think that Indigenous people already have a voice and the advisory body would divide the nation by race, basically following the key arguments of uh, the No Camp. He was on Channel 10's The Project. They asked him about his reversal. So hang on, Kamal, you were originally saying no and then you went to yes. So uh, are you back on no? Yeah, because no, because it, no is an informed decision. Uh, the yes, the first no was an uninformed decision, and then a yes was a semi-informed decision. And now, 100%, I am well and truly uh, committed to saying no. He's achieved enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, nah, yeah, is how. No, 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 nah, yeah, nah, Whoa. yeah, nah, nah, yeah, nah, nah, yeah, nah. The full Aussie Aussie backflip. What do you how, What do you call it if you do two U-turns? You just you've just done a 360. That's a sick trick. Tom, when does this go to air? Because perhaps we should do... Oh, this, we're recording this on Friday. This is going to be released on Saturday night. We should do an alternate version when he's should returned Should we preemptively yes. do a version? Saying? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Kamal. Talk about the Greens. You're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. Right. We're stuck with the hosts of Chapo Shithouse podcast. Serious danger, Australia. Let's do the show. This is Serious Danger, everybody. I am Tom Ballard. Emerald Moon has one more week away, and so I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest co-host for this week. He's the editor of a very cool and funny Australian news opinion site, theshot.net.au. Check it out. One of the four hosts of the Shot podcast, Mr. Dave Milner. Hi, Dave. Thanks for being on the show. G'day, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is not an official Greens Party podcast, we should say. It is made possible with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff Griffin. Okay, a few little housekeeping stuff before we jump into this week's meaty topics. We're farewelling two dictators uh, this week, Daniel Andrews and Rupert Murdoch <gasps> with Dave. We'll talk about all that and more besides and the political implications therein and we'll laugh at the Murdoch media, which is always fun. Um, thank you so much to people who support the show via Patreon. We've had Michael and Jordan join the Serious Danger Patreon family this week. We love you, Michael and Jordan. Patreon.com forward slash Serious Danger AU. For just three bucks a month, you get all the bonus content. Just this week, we released a uh, bonus content with myself and Emerald beginning the journey of reading Paddy Manning's Inside the Greens, which is the longest book that's ever been written in the world. Uh, we're going to go through the whole thing. We read the prologue <laughs> on episode one, and we'll work through all the chapters over the over months, over the next 20 years, I suppose. If you want to have a listen to that, then become a patron and get involved. I also quickly want to say thank you to everybody who got in touch who wanted some tickets to my show, Yes, No. I'm performing this comedy lecture about Australia's History of failed referenda. Fuck you. It's really funny and good. Uh, at the Melbourne Fringe this week and for one show on October the 10th in Sydney at uh, the Grand Electric. Thank you very much to everybody who reached out for tickets. Hope you enjoy the show. If you want to come see the show, please do. The end. Also, we have a bit of Greens housekeeping to run through. Really quickly, some stuff that people might have seen in the news this week. Janet Rice, Victorian Green Senator, announced that she's not going to be contesting the next election. Former guest on Serious Danger, Greens legend, one of the founding members of Victorian Greens, 
a longtime fighter for justice who's yeah, dedicated 30 years plus to the cause for uh, for Greens politics and progressivism. We love you, Janet Rice. Congratulations on a great career. I'm sure we will have her on before the next election to reflect on her career and her legacy and what she leaves behind. Max Chandler Mather, good friend of the show, announced he's having a goddamn baby. Yuck. Ooh, no, no, that's no good. it's a beautiful news. And congratulations, Max. No, it's good. Babies are good. I, I endorse babies. <laughs> You're pro baby. <laughs> I've always been pro baby. <laughs> congratulations to Max and Joe. We love you. And uh, you're going to be great, great parents. He's going to take a little bit of a break. Of, of from uh, like paternity leave, which is totally fair enough. And uh, I just needed to acknowledge the fact that we got a photo this week. Did you see the photo from Marjorie Taylor Greene meeting with two Green senators and a bunch of other crazy people from Australian politics because they all believe that Julie Assange should be free? Did you see this kind of wild photo that was doing the rounds, Dave? I didn't see the photo, but I just did see some footage of Barney B. Joyce hanging out with a Green senator in Washington. Yeah. It's it's nice that they've found something they can all agree on, kind of. <laughs> it it is quite sweet. So you've got Barnaby Joyce, Victorian Teal Independent Monique Ryan, Labor MP Tony Zapia. Apologies if I'm butchering that pronunciation. Liberal Senator Alex Antic, and Green Senators Peter Wish Wilson and David Shoebridge. So they're all in in the US. And look, they have all. I didn't know about maybe Antic and. Nick Ryan and maybe that Labor MP either about publicly advocating for Julian's release and freedom, but certainly Barnaby has been quite vocal about his position on Julian Assange. I believe his mother is from his electorate, question mark, but he's certainly spoken out about it. And, yes, obviously the Greens have been, um, have always stood in solidarity with Julian Assange, highlighted the importance of his journalism and fought for his release. As they should. And I guess Marjorie Taylor Greene, absolute wingnut, is that fair to say? Like regular conspiracy theorist. Really off the deep end, uh, far right. One of the most unhinged people in a, one of the most <laughs> unhinged people in a very unhinged room. So I, I think that's completely fair. <laughs> yes, and it's disturbing when you find yourself agreeing with those type of people, albeit on you know very specific small issues. I guess yeah, I would love to know her specific. I mean, I know uh, some of the Trumpian right hail Assange as a hero because they believe at least that he was you know, hated Hillary Clinton so much that he, by their by their reckoning, Julian Assange's actions or WikiLeaks' actions during the 2016 election, you know, sort of helped Trump win the victory and therefore he should be free now. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, where they, where they land or for what particular reasons, but I don't know if we can get some kind of uh, cross consensus on the importance that this guy should not be prosecuted under the Espionage Act and face 135 years uh, imprisonment or whatever the fuck for doing journalism and exposing war crimes, then I guess we'll take the win. Amen. Uh, Also, finally, this story just came out today. We're recording this on Friday this week. We will return this later, but the Black Greens announced uh, or released a statement announcing their position on The Voice, basically calling on Greens members and other people sympathetic to the Greens and to First Nations justice in their view to either abstain or vote no on uh, The Voice, on the referendum. Um, it's something we've touched on uh, over the weeks on this podcast as we explore the very messy, <laughs> let's be let's be real, journey that the Greens have had in regards to this particular referendum and this question of The Voice. I think it's probably an understatement. I would love to return to this on the show before October 14th, hopefully with a member of the Black Greens joining us on the show to, to talk through that statement. But we'll put a link to that statement in the show notes if you want to take a look. But don't worry, we'll, re- we'll return to that in the future. To now recite the 272 words that changed America forever, please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Kamal. 
Thank you, Tom. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Thank you. Jamal, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Jamal. Thank that, you. Was, uh, that was beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you very much for doing it on our program. Just out of interest, what did you think when you heard the news that Tonightly was uh, cancelled? What, your show is cancelled? Yeah. <laughs> You're kidding. No. <Nope. laughs> Why are people so unkind? <laughs> Come on, everybody! Thank you. All right, baby. Here we go. Big story, of course. This dominated the news this week. Dictator Dan himself, Daniel Andrews, announced his resignation at a Snap press conference on Tuesday. He said that the job of Premier means every waking moment is about the work and that really takes a toll and he is stepping down. He will be Victoria's longest-serving Labor Premier. Uh, he pretty much has only ever worked in politics his whole life. He drove some people out of their fucking mind. Um, I'm hesitant. I mean, he, was he a polarising figure? He was turned into a polarising figure by some media forces that we might be able to talk about. Um he won the last election with a primary vote of 55%. So it seems like a pretty uniting yeah. figure, really. But um, but there you go. It really um, does. Dave, were you surprised at this news? Did it sort of come out of nowhere? Did you have any inkling that this was going to happen this term, that he wasn't actually going to serve out the term? What did you make of Mr. Andrews stepping down? If you look at the people that held very important, very stressful leadership positions during the COVID pandemic in the Victorian government, you'll see that they've all left. I'm not at all surprised Daniel Andrews has done the same. Brett Sutton, Daniel Andrews now, Martin Foley, um, James Merlino, basically anybody that had anything to do with the top of that has decided it was a very stressful thing and they don't want to do that anymore. And I mean, who can, who can blame them? I have to admit, watching some of the news highlights and seeing a montage of him standing in front of that purple background that we saw every fucking day for two years. It, like it was instantly a little bit triggering mm. and I can, I can completely understand it. I think it's fucking hilarious that Peter Credlin spent the last three years demanding he resign. Now that he's done it, she's like, what's he running from? <laughs> what, why can't he face it? I think that's fucking hilarious. I take your point about who can blame him. And 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 fair enough, right? Like, obviously, yes, you and I, I have no idea what it would be like to be a premier during, a premier generally and a premier during a pandemic, and it would take its toll. Having said that, uh, and maybe he did address this more and it did come up, it seemed to me that the, the question that, you know, this guy said that he would serve his full term during the last election, that was a very mm -hmm. big part of, that was a big part of the campaign, right? Like, that was a regular question that was put to Dan Andrews. He was unequivocal in his response, and he said, yes, I'm, I'm fully committed to serving the full term. Now, I guess politicians say that kind of stuff all the time. Maybe we always take it with a grain of salt and should never really believe it. But I don't know. Isn't that a little bit kind of dodgy or a little bit of a, 
a broken promise, heaven forbid, when it comes to him saying that he was committed to 2026? Yeah, no, it is. It is a broken promise. Like that's just unequivocally what it is. But I also think it's 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 quite understandable on a human level. He probably did mean what he said at the time and he probably means that he needed to leave right now. These things sort of creep up on you. We know what being a person that's just had enough, what that feels like. Um, it doesn't excuse it, like, but it is also a little bit of one of those media questions that people ask so that they can say it was a broken promise later. Mm. I think lots of people sort of understand how these things go. I mean, politicians retire in the middle of their terms all the fucking time. That doesn't mean it's not a broken promise. It just means it's something that happens. It's the nature of being human, you know. You can only take so much sometimes. Mm. All right, so, of course, immediately once he resigns and was very quickly uh, replaced, I mean, I must say the, the turnaround to install a new Premier was extremely quick, as I guess you'd expect it to be if there hasn't been a, a, a contest, although we might get to that in a moment too when we talk about his successor. But people talk about his legacy. Who was Dan Andrews? Was he good or was he bad? Was he a, an angel or a demon? Was he the best thing ever or was he the worst thing a ever? Dictator. And a, and a dictator of the worst. Um, let's let's start with the positive, shall we? What what good things should we give Dan Andrews credit for? What do you think he'll be remembered for in a positive way during his his tenure since 2014 as Labor Premier of Victoria? I actually think the headline item when all the craziness just dissipates and someone, you know, Peter Credlin's had an event and everyone's calmed down and we're multiple years away from the pandemic and everything, I think the headline lingering thing will really be the level crossing removal because it's something that people notice every single day. And mm. it's it's a little thing. It sounds like a little thing, but saving someone 20 minutes back and forth every single day of their working lives is important and it does make life better. And it's just a very rare example of a government spending public money on public good, lots of money, and it being very noticeable every single day. And and that drove the neoliberal press fucking nuts. Like that's the reason they're talking about debt and all this stuff. It's because the government proved that you can spend government money on good things that people really fucking appreciate and vote for. And that's the opposite of their ideology. So I think, mm. I do think that's the lingering, that that's the lingering good thing. Like I do. Yeah. I mean that giving anyone 40 extra minutes with, their kids or their friends or their beer a day is a good thing to have done. Mm. Yeah, all right. Because this is when I put on my annoying uh, greedy hat kind of thing. Um, and for people outside of Victoria, I'm sure you've probably, <laughs> you've probably you've, you've heard about this. This was part of Victoria's big build and a massive program um, that the Andrews government introduced over a very long period of time, which was to try and get rid of yeah these level crossings where basically you know the, the train would go across the road and people would have to sit in their cars waiting for that to happen. And so a lot of the time you're getting rid of that, you're putting the train underneath the road, for example, and so that the trains can carry on and cars can keep driving and so, yeah, lots of people in their commute saved a substantial amount of time. Well, the annoying green position is to sort of say, yeah, this was a car-based policy sort of dressed up as like it was doing something better for trains and for public transport. Now, they probably did have some positive effects for the public transport system, but the amount of money, time and effort that went into that when we're trying to decarbonize when there's a climate crisis, you know, making driving easier, yada, yada, yada. This is what the annoying Greens person uh, would say. But, um, you know, fair credit to him and lots of other infrastructure uh, projects and lots of building all around Melbourne that has been driving some of us insane. But 
has certainly been very popular with people. And and I guess the the labor brain defense or the advocacy, why they why they admire the political nous of Daniel Andrews is this idea that if you can prove yourself as a government to voters, to people on these tangible infrastructure questions, building shit, putting a lot of money into that, uh, providing employment to, to lots of people as well and keeping the economy ticking over, that gives you the license to then focus on a whole bunch of the social progress that the Andrews government also brought in when it came to voluntary assisted dying. You know, he stuck his neck out on a lot of LGBTQI plus issues. I think when it comes to trans rights, he's been pretty admirable in taking on the insane turf war and the fight against uh, trans people and gender diverse people, treaty negotiations, um, and and so on. That seems to be the the laborist approach to getting these material wins of building shit, which gives you the social license and the political capital that allows you to also implement socially progressive um, uh, policies too. Would you agree with that? Do you think that's a pretty fair summary? Yeah, I think it definitely buys you capital to do those things that are, you know, slightly more controversial in mainstream Australia's mind. Absolutely. Mm. Is that, um, I mean, it's pragmatic and, you know, perhaps cynical. Is that, is that a bad approach for a government to have though? No, no, I, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think I certainly, um, uh, you know, I'd have critiques of the Andrews government, which we'll get to in a moment here too. But I think on that on that front, Me too. Um, you certainly can recognise a winning strategy. And from the Greens' point of view, okay, so, and we talk about this on the show a lot, if the Greens are perceived as being preoccupied almost exclusively with social issues and aren't speaking to people's material needs, and I'm saying I, I think that perception of the party is changing, particularly on, say, the housing fight recently. Like I think this reorientation of the party underneath that band is speaking much more to people's material needs. Thumbs up to that. But if lots of people have the perception that the Greens are, you know, preoccupied with uh, issues that exclusively affect minority groups or um, are entirely in the social sphere and aren't talking to bread and butter material needs of people, then then I think – yeah, we just won't win as many votes as we need to build power and we should be speaking about that stuff because that is stuff that is really important to to everybody's lives or the vast majority of working people's lives. Absolutely. Um, so I think in that respect, there is a lot of lessons to learn from from the Andrews government and his Labor's approach to, to certain issues at least. And I, I think the Greens have definitely taken some of those lessons. I think you're entirely right to talk about this um I mean, renters are such a huge demographic now, an electorally significant demographic, given how fucked the economy is, to put yeah. it extremely bluntly. <laughs> if the Greens position themselves as the party of renters, they will absolutely be seen as more economically serious and they will reach more people that are just less engaged with social issues. I think it's it's not only a good thing to do that would improve society, mm. it's good politically. And that's kind of what I'm saying about the Andrews level crossings. They did you know, improve people's lives and they were good politically. There's no reason why it has to be, you know, when you think of good political, you think of cunning rat-like people like Howard and the way they manipulate dog whistles and that. There's there's good politically and good for people in the electorate. It's it's nice to be reminded of that every now and then, I guess. Yeah. Um, treaty negotiations, again, the advancement of that. We'll see how it all uh, shakes out, of course, in Victoria, but at least the, the progress of that, making that a reality with the First People's Congress is a positive thing, I think, on the record. Safe injection rooms, again, that fight still rages. Richard Di Natale, former leader of the Greens, is 
leading the fight a lot in Victoria to try and change the public conversation around what safe injecting rooms do and how they save lives. So, And the Andrews government certainly played a role in making them happen, which I think is admirable. He cancelled the Commonwealth Games, which we, we covered that on the show. We think that's a, <laughs> we think that's a good thing. <laughs> we put that in the tick column ourselves. Oh. We, want, we want to cancel giant stupid sporting events. But I know lots of other people might feel differently about that, I suppose. I've not yet met anyone that was excited for the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> <laughs> just to put it out there. Yeah. Um, the COVID approach, obviously, and again, we might get to this when the critiques, but, you know, uh, uh, broadly the focus on the public health emergency and occasionally in lots of areas fighting back against the forces of capital and business when it came to approaching the pandemic and doing what needed to be done, um, thumbs up for me. And I mm. think um, he he did the right thing on a lot of those fronts with all the caveats that come with that, with the uh, the shitty mistakes that were made by the Andrews government during that pandemic and their refusal to apologise for yeah. a lot of those shitty mistakes. I still think more broadly you would have to say that he, he did the right thing. I, I do agree that he, broadly he did the right thing through the pandemic. I, I appreciated living in a state with a premier taking a health first approach rather than his more gristle for the mill you know, go get go get sick so the economy can keep turning. I do think there are a handful of I the the unforgivable one for me is the public housing lockdown that happened mm. extremely quickly and without warning. And those people were not treated the same way that more affluent Victorians and Melburnians were. And I don't really feel there's much justifiable reason for that. Yeah. Um but yeah, broadly speaking, you know, I, I do think he, um, him and Brett Sutton were appreciated by a lot of Victorians. Yeah, I mean, the public towers thing is a great example, right? Because, yes, shitty behaviour, that was bad. It was later investigated by the ombudsman, was found to have breached those people's human rights and the government still never apologised. Andrews never sort of took on that that finding by an independent ombudsman and apologised for that because he refused to, I guess, I don't know, cede an inch in the political fight over his record on COVID, even though that was... A real boo-boo. I thought the curfew was also pretty stupid. Um, the private security guards for hotel quarantine is a complicated one in that I think it was disastrous, but have the, the public service had been so hollowed out, right? I mean, like Andrews was working within the context of a public service in Victoria that had been completely, you know, outsourced, hollowed out on, on so mm. many different fronts, thanks to mainly the neoliberal revolution under Jeff Kennett, that of course you get a private security guard to work at hotel quarantine. That's just the way things are done. Um, that's just how broken the Victorian public service was. So, you know, whether that's directly his fault or whether that was him dealing with those circumstances is kind of up for debate, I think. My take on that is that the problem really wasn't the fact that it was private security guards. The problem is the fact that it was hotels. And right. like that's where things went wrong. These are it's the front line of our defence against this highly contagious airborne uh, disease and our response is let's stick him in the fucking Novotel. Like that's that's not a winning <laughs> idea from the get go. That's the problem. I know this turned out to be bullshit. But remember when we thought that a security guard had, had sex with <laughs> with someone and that's how COVID yes, got I out. Mean, I just those are crazy times. <laughs> that was the Herald Sun on its just on its fucking rage trip for those years and. That's just what we had to listen to every fucking day. It was insane. Horny security guard locks down the entire state. By <laughs> getting his fuck on. Oh, <laughs> I mean, we get it. It's a stressful time. <laughs> Speaking of, and this is another win in the Andrews column for me, 
or at least an interesting conversation, his approach to the media. Okay, of course, and you've written this about this extensively mm. on uh, The Shot, which people should check out. And, and, in fact, where The Shot probably found a big audience that it broke through was during the pandemic in which you were trying to fight back somewhat and provide a progressive, reasonable voice uh, interrogating and critiquing the insane coverage of the Andrews government's approach to COVID uh, during the pandemic, particularly coming from the Herald Sun, like truly unhinged stuff. And Andrews' ability to drive News Corp figures out of their fucking mind has been endlessly entertaining. Um, Perhaps it reached zenith when we had a front page from the Sunday Herald Sun showing the steps that Daniel Andrews uh, had had. Uh, reportedly, allegedly fallen down and injured his back, seriously doing some <laughs> investigative journalism about whether these steps could really injure anybody. Like it was fucking bananas and, and insane. Do you, know, do you know what my favourite part about that story was? Please. Is that the, it was the second or third paragraph that mentions that it's a 12-centimetre step or a 10-centimetre step, and that just means that their reporter went out there with a ruler <laughs> And got down on his knees and measured the fucking steps to find that piece of information. And I just think that's a fascinating way to spend your life. Incredible. Good journalism stuff. And even now, you know, once again, all these figures proven to be completely out of touch after you have a state election in which the Labor government, uh, Labor Party is returned with an increased majority. Like just all these ideas that, of course, Dan Andrews is going to be wiped out. Everybody hates Dan Andrews just like us was proven to be a complete lie. You would think that would involve some level of reflection, some level of trying to understand what it is about the Andrews government approach to governing in Victoria that is clearly connecting with Labor voters and why everyone hates the Victorian Liberals so much. But no, as soon as Andrews steps down, Herald Sun political editor James Campbell blasted the Premier's ruthless reign. Sky News host Peter Credlin expressed regret that he wasn't taken away in handcuffs. So obviously they've gone insane. That's funny and entertaining for us. But I suppose... Andrew's approach to the media, right? Like his 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 positioning towards the media, and lots of people wrote about this. I mean, uh, Bernard Keane in the Crikey was comparing it to the media strategy that Jeff Kennett employed, which was basically just ignore these fucks, like right, don't give them the credibility, uh, talk directly to people. And Andrew's, you know, used social media to do that a lot to to great effect, really, to get his his message out there. I just think that's that's kind of an interesting whether that's an interesting lesson for progressives when we know the media is so concentrated in the hands of Murdoch in this country. Uh, how much store or credibility should we give to these fuckheads, and how much should we just act as if they do not exist and try and talk directly to people, and and stop pursuing the futile mission of trying to get a decent hearing in these organisations that are. Com- Completely set up and geared towards and biased against any kind of progressive change. Is that is that a lesson that we can take from Daniel Andrews' career? I've made this point repeatedly. I think it's insane. I think it's a version of insanity to keep for, for you know uh, Labor politicians in particular, particularly at the federal level, to keep treating Sky News and the Australian and the Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph as legitimate sources of news. I think. I, what what yeah. Anthony Albanese should take from Daniel Andrews is exactly this: is that these the frothier and ragier and the more unhinged these right wing publications get right now, the more obvious it is that that's the case. It's just we're seeing it in Victoria. There's this: the pandemic was a clear moment where people could see the disconnect between the world the Herald Sun was painting for them and the real world. And mm. Anthony Albanese could yeah. just grow a fucking spine on this issue 
not be so terrified of them. I don't think it would harm him that much. It had no impact on Daniel Andrews whatsoever. If anything, it made him more popular that he stood up to these people and that he ignored them. Yes. Yes. I mean, yes, Andrews in 2022, Corbyn in 2017, if people follow the UK election. I mean, every single organ of the mainstream media geared against him. They release the manifesto. They talk about the things that they want to do, which is redistribute wealth for the benefit of everybody. And in 2017, Corbyn increased, like, like pushes the Conservatives, the Tories into minority government. We won't talk about what happened after that. But in 2017, you know, at least a, an example of staring down this insane media machine um, not necessarily meaning your electoral uh, wipeout. And yes, Andrew is, is, is a great example there too. It's actually inherent that mainstream media will never be on the side of society-wide progressive change. It's These things make large money. They attract large sponsors. These people will always represent the ruling class, always. Yeah. And so the left really needs to think about alternative forms of getting their message out alternative forms of media that are funded yes. in different ways. It's it's very important, and they have not done that well over the last little while. That's very true. Um, all right, briefly, bad stuff. We've touched on the, uh, the COVID stuff uh, that was not so great from the Andrews government. Um, lack of accountability, I would put in there. Certainly a whole bunch of scandals that mm-hmm. did affect the Andrews government's reaction to some of those scandals, a right-wing media beat up. Some of them like legitimately this is pretty fucked up and dodgy and some pretty scurrilous side things here and lots of people um, uh, avoiding responsibility for their decisions. The the private um, security guards during COVID, that entire inquiry and apparently nobody was responsible for that decision was an example of things getting particularly weird and pretty dodgy in my view. Uh, lots of talk about how much power was centralised uh, within the Andrews government, within the hands of the Premier himself and his sort of his circle, I suppose. I mean, there's a difference between you know dismissing shitty media and not and treating them with the lack of respect they deserve, and also you know uh, not valuing press freedom, I suppose, and, um, and punishing anybody who might go to the media or, or whistleblowers or what have you. Those are two different uh, approaches, I think, that we that we should. It's important to um, to differentiate between. Yeah, absolutely, and this is another reason why the Herald Sun's unhinged stick is so annoying. Is it? It actually lets him get away with this other stuff because it's the it's just right. the boy who cried wolf. That's how it works. Right. Uh, criminal justice, no good. Loved prisons, expanded prisons. Not not a big fan. Not really a uh, critical approach to Victoria Police. I think it'd be fair to say from the Daniel Andrews government. Terrible on weed. Loves Again, still just completely. Loves cops, loves um, completely loves dismisses cops. the idea that we should do anything differently about the drug war. That was really bad. Privatization across the board. I think he semi-privatized Vic Roads, and again, which is part of the broader story of the neoliberal attack on the state and the and the public service. But you know, Andrews played his role in that. And I mean, lastly, and lots of people talking about this, this housing plan, which is pretty much his last act, right, just before he stepped down. After he hung on there, cancelled the Commonwealth Games, hurrah. He also <laughs> announces this new housing strategy to try and address Victoria's housing crisis. Some good things in there, I suppose. This levy on Airbnb profits, which is probably going to get paid by customers, but anyway, at least taking some of the profits out of these short-stay accommodation companies. Speeding up an approval process, a little bit dodgy in that you know the speed of these approval processes are often overstated as the massive cause driving the housing crisis and often just makes things easier for developers. Slight strengthening of renters' rights on a bunch of uh, fronts and, you know, the Andrews government have introduced some reforms when it comes to renters' rights that we would think would be broadly positive. But 
also announced he's tearing down 44 public housing towers, these iconic towers that were celebrated as massive part of post-war uh, reconstruction in Victoria, 44 of them currently housing 10,000 public housing residents. They're all going to be torn down and the government like to be like, oh, when everything's redeveloped, 30,000 people will be housed. Turns out only 11,000 of those 30,000 will be public tenants and the other will be in a mixture of social and market housing. Okay, so we are privatizing these public housing uh, buildings. We're getting rid of them, tearing them down. And again, it's all public-private partnership, bringing in the private sector, bringing the profit motive, as opposed to preserving the tiny, tiny amount of public housing that is left in the state of Victoria. And apparently that's a progressive reform to make things better. Does does that mean that, so of the 10,000 public housing residents now, when these towers are rebuilt, there will be room for 11,000, there will only be 1,000 more public housing spots in these towers. Is that what that means? That's what that means. And whether the people who are currently there are going to be able to go back there seems very unclear to me. They, they don't seem to be committing to that. It will take, you know, this is a decades process. It will take a long time. I think the first tower is going to be demolished in 2031. Um, they say that the residents are going to be shepherded through this process and housed and it's going to be good. And yada, yada, yada. Some people are saying the costs in rehousing and relocating these people while this work is done will be crazy expensive and you might, you'd might be better off spending that money just refurbishing these particular towers. Uh, the, I would say the NGO sector, the housing sector across the board have been pretty scathing of this particular plan to knock down 44 towers with public housing residents and basically contribute to the gentrification of the inner city and hand over this public land to to private developers, you know. Fuck. It sounds a little bit like the sort of policy you come up with at Friday at 4.30 when you're on the way out the door forever. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, I mean, his replacement, uh, the new premier, Jacinta Allen, she's from the socialist left. She's Victoria's second ever female premier. She's identified housing as her number one priority. Um, there's also this big claim that Victoria's going to build 80,000 new homes every single year for the next decade, which seems- It's like 300 a day. <laughs> That's fucking heaps. And it's a lot of day. Of course, without addressing who's going to own those houses and like how much they're going to cost. Who's who's building 300 houses a day? Am I expected to help? Like, do we have to help? Like, that's a lot of fucking houses. <laughs> I guess, yeah, you might get the call. <laughs> do we know much about Jacinta Allen? I, I, don't, I honestly don't know much. I know she's from Bendigo. I know she's pretty young, but I... Don't know much about uh, her plans for the state or her politics. I have to say I'm very uninformed on the matter of Jacinta Allen. Um, yeah, no, plead ignorance as well. How, how old is she when you say she's young? Um, I don't know how old she is now. She was very. She was in her late 20s, I believe, when she first got elected in 99. Okay. So um, I guess she's young in the grand scheme of things. She's 50 years? Oh, she's 50 years old now. Okay. okay. Cool. That's, that's a normal age for a politician. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My last question to you on this front, Dave, is what do you think this means for Victorian politics now? Does Andrews going and Alan taking over give the Victorian Liberals a glimmer of hope? Does this give them a second wind to attack the Labor government in a new and fresh way? And what does it mean for the Victorian Greens and progressive politics generally? How do you think it's all going to play out? I mean, have you met the Victorian Liberals? Have you seen what they're like? Like, I mean, anyone else, you'd be like, yeah, no, this is a real opportunity. This extremely popular leader is retired after a nine year of ruling with an iron fist, it has vacated the space. And of course you have a chance, but it's the Victorian liberals. Yes, and I yes. would just say, never bet on them. <laughs> like, they're a clown car. I mean, Tim's, I mean, I know Tim Smith stepped back, but he was their star 
figure through the pandemic. He was their, you know, their icon and their media figure. And like he got, he did this in parliament. He went, <laughs> he did that thing like during a speech in parliament. And then he got drunk and crashed a car. And like that is who the Victorian Liberal Party are. So no, I don't think they have much of a shot despite what the Herald Sun will now sort of try to imply every single day until election day. Yeah. Um, as for Victorian Greens, that's that's a more interesting, more complicated question. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it always there's always an opportunity in these things. How well, I mean, the Labor Party and the Greens don't like working with each other at the best of times. What do, what do you think it means? You, you have more insight to this side of politics than I do, I imagine. Yeah, I mean- Look, the I guess Jacinta Allen being, I mean, she's not a new face in Australian politics. Obviously, she was Deputy Premier and has been around a long time. But I would suppose as Daniel Andrews was such a public figure, so well-known and dominated Victorian politics and news uh, over the past well, over the past decade, basically, um, she could probably, you know, arrive with a pretty fresh face. Um, she doesn't have the baggage that perhaps Daniel Andrews did, um, whether she will pursue either as progressive or a more progressive agenda than him, I, I suppose, remains to be seen. Um, and it does sound like the Victorian Labor right are kind of jostling at the edges to try and have more influence over the party, I suppose you might say. Uh, ben Carroll, the Deputy Premier, it was sort of there was rumours that he was maybe going to run um, and, and shift the party or the state to the right, you would think. So I guess that will that will wait and see. I think there has been some productive wins, and the Victorian Greens have certainly been claiming a bunch of wins on some fronts um, when it came to the fight for ending native title, native um, ending native logging, <laughs> not ending native title, ending native logging, for example, was a big win for the for the Greens. So we took a lot of credit. <laughs> it's a strange thing for the Greens to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fight what? around gas. <laughs> The fight around gas mm. is still like a massive one, like transitioning the the state off gas and making sure we don't do any more fracking is is a very big fight for, for the Greens. So we're certainly going to be fighting about that. And I think Labor is taking the message on on housing and and rental rights in a way, but that there's still a lot of landscape to, to fight over that too. So, I mean, Samantha Ratnam, the leader of the Victorian Greens, did the tweet, of course, the, hey, farewell, Daniel Andrews, congrats on a run and welcome Jacinta Allen, you know, second ever um, female premier of the state to the extent that these kind of identity wins mean something or will have a serious effect on policy, you know, it is it is good, I suppose, that for the second time a woman has become the leader of the state in apparently the most progressive state in the in the country. So they did all that stuff. Um, I have no idea what their relationship is parliamentary-like with uh, Jacinta Allen, but I'm sure the Labor will do a bunch of cook stuff and uh, the Greens will say that sucks and then Labor will tell us we suck. The, the fight continues. Yep. Yeah. It's usually what happens. It is how it goes. Sister works. Go ahead, babe, talk about me. I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. All right, let's move on. Speaking of another highly popular leader stepping down and everyone being very sad and wishing him well, Rupert Murdoch this week announced he's no longer the chairman of News Corp. He's going to be handing over the keys. He's becoming chairman emeritus, whatever the fuck that means, and Lachlan is taking over. 
Um, Dave, you expressed your feelings about this in a piece entitled Fuck Rupert Murdoch. Um, well, tell us what you really think. What you, you know, yeah, you're, no. you're sad to see Rupert go or you don't think he did some good things? I just you know, wanted a little to bit re- of balance, a little <laughs> bit of bias. Be fair and balanced. All right, Dave, and tell us what you think about Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, well, I mean, I wrote this very level-headed, very balanced, down-the-middle piece about really a person that has wielded and caused so much destruction just just to humanity's ability to have a civil reality-based conversation. I, I think that's the crowning achievement is he's just allowed unhinged people to claim the narrative, to claim the historiography of the now. And I just, yeah, it, 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 I had a lot of feelings on that day. I was, I was with uh, Grace Tame. We were recording our podcast on the morning that that got announced and she was buzzing. I've never seen her buzz like that before. I was, <laughs> yeah, hit by the gravity of the moment, but also well aware that the thing I'd been writing for two weeks no longer counted for shit and I had to write something very quickly on a Friday. Um, but that's just that's just me whinging. I, I think he is probably the person that has caused the most harm to humanity in my lifetime. Yeah. Him stepping down is a, is a good thing. It's not a it's not a flawless victory by any means. But the, the solace is that Lachlan is not his dad. Lachlan will not be as good at this conservative social media project on behalf of the forces of evil. He's just he doesn't have <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have what his dad had, and that's that's a relief. It doesn't mean things are going to be amazing. It just means that this trend that people like Daniel and there will be more people in powerful positions like Daniel Andrews that are able to just say. Fuck off. I don't care. Mm. I think that will happen as Lachlan's reign rolls on. You're right. Across a 70-year career as the head of News Corporation, a non-state political actor and conservative social engineering project disguised as a news media company, Murdoch has innovated, refined, and perfected methods of inflicting misery and dulling minds all across the Western world as great distance from his physical shriveled shell. If the world's information flows like a stream, Rupert Murdoch has for seven decades been a strain of E. coli tainting the waters. Wonderful stuff. Well worth a read, everybody. Check it out at theshot.net.au. <laughs> what What do you think is his worst crime? The, my, my, you know, if you had to put him on on trial for journalism crimes, for human crimes, for war crimes, <laughs> uh, what would be up there for you? Just one? You got the Iraq war. You got the way the, the sun approached the Hillsborough disaster the widespread climate denial, the phone hacking, the attacks on democracy, employing Rowan Dean. These are all <laughs> extraordinary crimes. What what tops the list for you? I mean, he's employed he's employed Andrew Bolt for a very long time. Um, I think the worst thing, the, the thing that will have the longest implications for the state of the world is 30 years of very consistent, very insistent, very insane climate denial. Mm in all his media across the UK, America, and Australia. And these are nations that are having to battle an ideological stance, you know, just a version of the way things are as much as they are technological. And Rupert Murdoch has held that back far more than anybody else. You, I, I know we 
we, you know, these are stupid publications. We say this all the time, but the honest to God's truth is that people do parrot what they read in these things. It does form their understanding of the world. And that makes it harder for governments that want to do the right thing. Not that we have one of those, but for governments that want to do the right thing, it makes them far harder to do it. And that is probably the greatest crime given the gravity of that situation. Close second is Brexit. I think Brexit is a disaster of, you know, historical proportions. Europe is very rarely as stable as it was during that post-Second World War period. And, you know, doing the Murdoch thing of pressing the xenophobia buttons, pressing the fear buttons, pressing the racism buttons the entire time, helping that nation jump out of that political and economic block, um, that that's that that is a disaster, and I and Nigel Farage credited Rupert Murdoch for that. I think we should too. I think mm. those are probably the two worst things. I, God, I mean, like I could keep going. The invasion yes. of Iraq. Yeah, you know, I put the that Iraq- would not have happened without the support. Yes, I, I would put Iraq War above Brexit myself. But anyway, it, it doesn't matter. They're all shit. They're all terrible <laughs> crimes that uh, that should not have happened and are very very bad. Remember that shareholder meeting when he was just like, "Oh, there's no climate diets working." There's no one at my organization who denies climate change. Like, I, I remember him just saying that. We all just sort of moved on as if that was an acceptable thing to say. It's like, do you read or watch your own fucking media? What the hell are you talking about, you crazy gun? Yeah, I mean, that's it. He can say what he wants and a certain amount of people will believe it and there isn't much accountability. He's this post-truth world that we always like to, you know, talk about and lament because it is it presents serious problems for fixing serious problems. This, like Rupert is one of the key architects of the way things are now, and he can never be held accountable for that. He can never face enough justice for that. Well, he won't be receiving any justice from the Labor Party. Some incredible quotes from the government, the Labor government on uh, Rupert Murdoch's retirement. He's a controversial figure, but also an influential figure, Treasurer Jim Chalmers said. In lots of ways, it's the end of an era at news, and there will be mixed views, often strongly held, about his contribution. Jesus fucking Christ, mate. Take a fucking position. Why say anything at all? Like, (laughs) tell us what your favourite colour is, Jim Chalmers. Jesus. I think any fair-minded observer might say that, you know, some of the News Limited papers might not exactly be cheerleaders of the Labor Party, but that's what happens in a democracy. I wish him well for his retirement, said Penny Wong. What the fuck are you doing? They're scared. Communications Minister Michelle Rowland said Mr Murdoch left behind a lasting legacy after building Fox and News Corp. Yeah, that's one way to fucking put it. So did fucking Hitler, mate. (laughs) Oh, God. All right, that's just going to make me angry. I'm sorry. So this question of Lachlan taking over, okay, I, I can't seem to get a clear reading on Lachlan Murdoch's politics, his approach, his plans for the for the company, okay? Here's one quote. Lachlan's ascendancy is not expected to soften the media empire's right-wing politics, with Lachlan Cartwright, the Daily Beast's editor-at-large, warning that the son is staunchly more conservative than his dad, and so I think, if anything, you may see some of that appear in some of the titles throughout the empire. Whereas I heard Paddy Manning being um, interviewed, Paddy Manning, a journalist who's written a biography of Lachlan Murdoch, sort of saying that he was less of a political animal, less interventionist than his father, and has always described his his politics as socially liberal, economically conservative, which is a, a phrase that drives us all insane, of course. But he sort of seemed to be suggesting that he wouldn't be as um, as involved and as much of a kingmaker as his father was. Can you have you sort of got a read on that? Um, I think he will certainly make fewer kings than his father did, but I don't think it will be for want of trying. <laughs> I, 
I mean, th- I guess through the simple fact that he has watched and observed and idolized and just absorbed the way his dad does things for a very long time, for his entire career. Mm. I I mean, obviously it's um obviously it's to be seen how it plays out, but I don't think betting on News Corp to become more reasonable and to start doing reality-based journalism, I don't think that's ever a good call. <laughs> Yeah, don't put your money on that particular bet. This is what we complain about the Labor Party doing all the time. It's just acknowledge the reality that this is a propaganda rag for a certain position in politics and they will hammer the fuck out of you unless you represent that. I mean, we've got to do the same. They, they're they not going to get better. I just think they will become more inept and I think – I mean, the transit, it's a very difficult time to be in media. They're fortunate that they've got a, a bunch of money and a bunch of expensive assets. But so, I mean, social media is continually whittling away all of these traditional sources of power. And that's, this is part of why people like Dan Andrews can just ignore, ignore it. And hang, hang on, Dave. Dave, are you saying that the Oz, the Australian's youth outreach social media platform, isn't going to survive or capture the attention of Australia's youth and revive the fortunes of the Murdoch media empire? What the fuck? I'm sure it'll be all the rage on TikTok. I'm sure it will turn things around (laughs) and that that we will all be swearing allegiance to King Lachlan. (laughs) Any day now. Any day now. Okay, last question on this. What what about that old Royal Commission? Uh, the Murdoch Royal Commission organization is still chugging along as far as we know. I'm sure Malcolm Turnbull's still very involved. Kevin Rudd wants it to happen mm-hmm. as well. There was a Senate inquiry. Sarah Hansen-Young is, uh, I believe, on that Senate inquiry. At least the Greens have been making a lot of noise in that respect. But, I mean, it seems at least the Labor Party has no interest in pursuing a Royal Commission and, in fact, sort of explicitly said so or seem to be interested in introducing greater regulation, in fact, even, or have truth and advertising uh, sort of laws, or I don't know. What do, what do you think about the future of regulating or doing anything about the concentration of um, of the Murdoch media in Australia? Well, any, any chances there? Any good news on the horizon? It's not feeling great, is it? I, th- I think it's, it's a slightly baffling position for the Labor Party to take on surface level at first, but then – I, I don't know. Is Albanese the type of is he is he the type of megalomaniac that can dream up a world in which he wins over Lachlan and gets to wield that power against his political opponents? It's hmm. I think it's complete miscalculation if that's where his head is at. And that actually this is a, a serious problem, really fundamentally of, of you know, impacting the way democracy works in America, in the UK, in Australia. And if he felt like stepping up and being a leader and treating it as the serious problem that it is, actually that that's where the political payoff would be in the long term. That's why, I mean, we've debated a lot over the last few weeks about the misinformation flying around, particularly in regards to The Voice. That mm. This is a world where News Corp is free to say whatever fucking bullshit they like Peter mm. Credlin a few days ago was comparing Melbourne's crime stats to Johannesburg's, yeah. um, and they're just not even on the same level of the charts. If if Albanese can't see an opportunity in 
stricter media regulations against this sort of thing. Not This isn't state overreach. This isn't crushing the press. This is just holding the press to their self-professed standards mm. of what the job is actually meant to be about because that is what it's meant. Sorry, I get worked up about this stuff. I have very strong opinions about journalists that don't do their job properly like most of us. But this is, yeah, it's it's a baffling it's a baffling move as far as I'm concerned. I can see why, and I think it's based on fear of something that isn't quite as powerful as it used to be. Mm. But, Jesus, that quote from Penny Wong is so revealing, like, oh, I guess that's that's democracy. That's just what happens. It's like, no, this is not democracy. You have to recognise a billionaire concentrating wealth and power and the fucking media in his hands to serve the interests of his own capitalist class and his other mates, right, the other people that align with, that give him money, that he is in, you know, has a class solidarity with. That is the antithesis of democracy. And if you cannot recognise that fucking threat, and have the courage to point it out and, and identify it as a serious problem and a erosion of democracy, in fact, in public debate, then what the fuck are you doing, dudes? Get out of the job. Amen. Amen. <sighs> program we've had <laughs> i'm glad you get worked up as much as i do because i just had a moment of self-awareness i felt quite embarrassed <laughs> thanks tom made me feel better <laughs> oh, well you should feel angry if you want to maintain that rage and anger go to the shot.net.au always great pieces they're funny they're insightful and yes they're angry because there are things happening in our country and the world that we should be angry about fantastic um a website and a great podcast too yourself charles firth previous special guest co-host of the show uh, Joe Dyer and the wonderful Grace Hame, Australian of the Bloody Year, co-hosting that podcast. So do check it out. Um, you can rate and review this show on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening. You can check us out on social media at Serious Danger AU on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube and TikTok. Go to seriousdangerpod.com for all your serious danger needs. Emerald will be back with us next week. But Mr. Dave Milner, thank you so much for being our special guest co-host for this week. It's been a pleasure having you on, man. Thanks for having me. That was fun, man. Yay! Serious Danger Australia.